0: Mid afternoon, May, under an empty high altitude sky, cool but the sun blazing like it yearned to cinder you. I took a right turn off pavement and passed under a massive H-shaped ponderosa log entryway. A nearly discreet sign swinging on two chains from the cross member read, "Long Shot." Down the dirt drive two black arcs of telephone and electric lines drooped pole to pole for half a mile of tall grass and sage. At the end of the road, the ranch house sat long and dark brown. It wasn't old. Not much is out there except the land itself. But this was aggressively new. Its angular, flattish roof lines looked like Frank Lloyd Wright had been hired to draw up an enormous log and stone cabin one morning and had tossed it off in time for lunch. The center of the house stood tall and angled, and the two wings stretched low and flat. My first thought was that it hunkered against the world, as if attacking bands might still roam the plains. As architecture, it made me wonder who it was afraid of, or conversely, "'who its anger was aimed at. "'To the left of the house, "'the paved highway ran far enough away "'that vehicles passed, "'miniaturized, barely visible, "'and totally silent. "'To the right, "'open country stretched west "'across sage hills "'to distant blue-black pine mountains "'in front of ghostly snow peaks, "'flat as drawing paper "'against the sky, "'the Wind River Range.' Centered in my windshield, heavy double doors, tall and wide enough for a locomotive, or at least a packard to pass through, stood closed. Above the shoulders of the house, a herd of red cattle grazed a near hillside. They drifted all in the same direction, paired with their shadows, moving slow as a tide change. Sky stretched blank and blue to the horizon in every direction. I stepped up on the porch and knocked three times. The knocker was a stylized bronze horseshoe big as the mouth to a five-gallon bucket. I waited and knocked again. No response. To the right of the house, a pole-fenced round pin with sandy footing sat next to a massive hip roof horse barn. In the center of the circle, an elder slim cowboy in a frayed straw hat lunged a young quarter horse on a long line, the horse shorter both front to back and up and down than the thoroughbred some of my father's clients rode to kill foxes with packs of dogs. Handle and lash, the cowboy's lunge whip was twice as long as he was tall. He swirled his right hand loose wrist, making a figure eight with the whip apparently just for the slow, rhythmic, whooshing sound of it, the music. The tip never touched the horse. It trotted in circles, head and tail up and ears back. I walked over to the corral and waited to be noticed. The cowboy didn't even look my way. He seemed to be muttering low to the horse. Sometimes he let the whip end fall to the ground and barely tapped the horse with the long handle across its chest or upper legs. A reminder, like tapping someone on the shoulder. The horse would stop, change directions, change gait with tiny movements of the cowboy's right hand or his muttered words. One time, he let the horse slow to a stop, and then he slacked the line and let it fall to the ground. He lowered his head and looked at his boot tips and backed away a few slow steps like he had no expectations of the horse, required nothing from it had in fact forgotten all about it. After only a few seconds, the horse stepped toward him, curious but wary, and then the cowboy pulled the line until it was off the ground but still loose. He made a slight mouth noise, and the horse trotted in a circle along the fence line. The succession of events was a communication, a language, and when the horse started circling with only a quick sound, it felt somehow like coming to the end of a stanza. Mr. Long, I said. The cowboy kept his eyes on the horse, his beat-up, big-knuckled hands fully occupied with the lunge line and the whip. He tipped his head back and aimed his chin toward the front of the house. When the shade of his hat brim lifted, sunlight caught his face halfway and lit up white whiskers. First glance, he appeared to lack a mouth, since from nose down nothing revealed itself but bristles. He wore Levi's worn pale at the rear end in a faded blue plaid western shirt with the sleeves cut entirely off. Under the saddle tan skin, his forearms and upper arms and shoulders looked like an anatomy study. Muscle and tendon and veins squirmed and clenched in ropes and knots. His gray face looked grafted onto a younger body. I stood there while by the fence, wondering what to do, until the cowboy, without breaking his concentration on the horse, finally said, go on in. And then to the horse he said, I've about got you to know the word woe, so let's us quit and head to the barn. I climbed the steps back onto the porch, knocked again, and then opened the heavy doors and stuck my head in and said, Hello. Hey. Anybody home? apparently nope. So I stepped into the entryway. As my eyes adjusted, the room swelled, dark and wide and taller than expected, shaped by massive timbers and log walls and Douglas fir plank ceilings. Daylight filtered down from narrow, clear story windows like slits in a fort wall for firing. A circular projection of amber light from a big mica-shade lamp on a round oak table defined the center of the space. Shelves of books absorbed sound and light, but all around, rising high toward the ceiling, I could see paintings, layers of them rising high toward the ceiling. On pedestals and shelves, bronzes of horses in various rodeo contortions. On a shelf higher than arm's reach, A rifle with a long telescopic sight occupied a horizontal shelf that looked made for it, a space to display an art object. The rifle's muzzle end was supported on a skinny metal bipod, and the belled rubber eyepiece of the scope flared like a coronet. Several little knurled knobs and wheels interrupted the long body of the scope and made me want to climb on a stepladder and twiddle with them to feel their precision. The four-stock reached almost to the muzzle, and the whole thing, wood and metal and glass, shone like it had been polished yesterday. At the end of the room, brighter hallways led off to left and right and straight ahead, but I hesitated to keep moving forward. I circled, looking at the art, mostly western. I'd have needed a flashlight to see the signatures, but guessed Russell for a lot of the bucking horses and Plains Indians hunting buffalo. A few Remingtons clustered together, including a very nice stark snow scene, almost black and white, of horsemen climbing through boulders up a rough mountain trail, very nearly abstract if you stood back and squinted. The sorts of paintings I studied photos of while I developed my mural proposal for Hutchinson to pitch to his committee. Off to the side, I found a small and very handsome mountain landscape, Surely a Moran. And then surprisingly, at least at that first moment, two French paintings. One, I guess, was probably a Matisse. A woman lounging on a chaise in a red room with a door opening to a blue sea. The other was almost certainly a tiny Renoir. A haze of landscape. Bits of shiny water. A meadow with flowers a female figure in the distance barely distinguishable from the vegetation. The painting itself couldn't have been even five by seven, but it was framed deep, wide, and dark, almost more frame than image, to enhance its luminosity and its tiny preciousness. You looked into it, and it magically enlarged and expanded away from you. I ventured farther into the house, calling out greetings now and then to avoid being taken for a burglar. Eventually, at the back of the house, I found a woman in a very large and bright modern kitchen. She chopped vegetables and tossed them into a huge pot of dark stock for stew. The woman set down her knife and wiped her hands and said, You'd be the painter, boy. I'm Val. Julia, she said. If you're looking for Mr. Long, he's gone. Be back in a few days, maybe, or sometime after that. He goes to Cheyenne, you never know when you'll see him again. Eve, she's going with him. You go out back to that first little cabin, blue door. That's yours. The big one with the brown door is for the hands. Don't ever go in there. It stinks something awful. And the one with the red door is Pharaoh's. You don't want to go in there either, for different reasons. Blue door, I said. Round about six, come back in here and have a plate at the kitchen table and take it back to the cabin. In the morning, breakfast at six, if you want meat and eggs and hash browns. The old man who cooks for the cowboys, he used to cook in chuck wagons on cattle drives, does breakfast and will bring it over if you're up. After seven, nothing but coffee and toast and jelly and a glass of milk. Serve yourself. I thank Julia for her help and got my bag out of the car, and walked around the house toward the blue door cabin. Between the house and the barn, four cowboys stood in a gathering off to the side of another young cowboy who was clearly drunk. He was stocky and red-faced and wore his hat pushed back to his hairline so that the afternoon sun struck his face full on. It shone oily and golden. He wore a pistol and a low holster on his thigh like an old-time gunfighter in the movies. None of the other ranch hands carried guns. One of them said, come on, Wilson, let's go inside and sell you down before you make a fool of yourself. Wilson waved his fingers over the pistol butt like it was a magic wand. He claimed he was in no mood to be told what to do by anybody whatsoever. The ranch hands conferred among themselves and then one of them headed to the barn. In a minute, the old cowboy I'd mistaken for long came out and walked toward the drunk cowboy. He still had on the sleeveless shirt, though the sun angled and the day had turned cool. He was not armed. Wilson said, Pharaoh, you may be a head man right here behind long, but this ain't the moment to dick around with me. Not a good time at all. Call it a bad mood, but you better step away and keep stepping. Pharaoh kept walking up. When he got close... Wilson settled his hand near his right hip above the pistol butt. He locked his eyes on Pharaoh and quivered the open hand like a threat to draw. The skin of Pharaoh's face clenched tight against the bones. He swiped his left palm downward to smooth his face hair. He ran his tongue around in a circle inside his closed lips and rubbed his right thumb and forefinger together like he needed a toothpick. He said, One chance, son. Shut up and go to bed and sleep it off. Wilson laughed and said, Old men's supposed to be real wise and shit, but out here they don't seem to make nothing but crazy fucking dumbass old men. He got halfway into laughing at his own wit when Farrow shuffled three steps very fast and grabbed Wilson's left wrist and yanked it sharp straight downward, and when the boy pitched forward from the waist, Farrow met the face with a knee. Wilson's nose burst with blood, and he bawled like a branded calf and staggered half a step. His knees buckled, and as he began to fall, Farrow reached for Wilson's pistol and pulled it from the holster and whipped the barrel of it against the back of his head as he fell. It happened almost too fast to follow. Wilson's hat landed a few feet away right side up, and Wilson came to earth face down with arms and legs splayed. He didn't move, except for struggling to breathe around the blood from his broken face. Farrow stuck the pistol under his belt and walked back toward the barn. One of the hands said, What are we supposed to do with him? Another one said, He didn't mean nothing. Over his shoulder, Farrow said, Neither did I. Wipe his face and put him to bed. Quit acting like somebody died. Might look bad right now, but this is not beyond the ability of the human body to heal. Tomorrow morning, if he's sobered up and can walk and still wants a job, tell him to come see me by noon at the latest. Otherwise, hit the road with all other railroad bums and hobos. The guest cabin was log, outside and inside, one large brown room with a gigantic bed at one end and a smooth riverstone fireplace at the other. Two fat stuffed leather chairs angled in front of the fireplace, a cozy two-chair breakfast table sat by the window, and that, together with the great bed, were as sad as checking into the bridal suite when you're traveling alone. If you were looking for something to criticize, the bathroom was maybe a little dim and narrow. You had to watch banging your elbows on a wall while brushing your teeth. Otherwise, the cabin was luxurious.